While you are turning to Galatians chapter 1, I'm just uh, curious, how many of you were here last year and remember a prayer request for a Mr. Anger? You actually remember that? Okay. You probably wondered, who is that guy with the last name Anger? Is he always angry? No. Um, Does go well with my job. I'm a Christian school principal, so it's nice when (laughs) I go to Mr. Anger's office to the junior high boys. It kind of helps. Um, Try not to live up to my name. I was told I have 30 minutes for chapel, although I was glad to follow Brother Swanson, so I know I actually can go longer if I need to. Uh, It's like every time I've heard him preach, he goes a little bit over the time limit, so we'll uh, we'll try to stay in the time limit here. You know, I appreciated his message yesterday and hearing about the lame man who walked, and he does a good job. Every time I've heard him speak, to just put you into that passage and imagine what it was like to be there and uh, to live that Bible story. I have a friend who, because of my incident that I'm going to tell you about today, calls me Lazarus every time he sees me. And I just imagine, try to imagine what it would be like to uh, have lived then and seen Lazarus come back to life and then be able to talk with him and uh, see him at a meal or something, fellowship with him. But more importantly, what would you be thinking? Wow, what a God we have, right? What a God. Jesus did this. Jesus brought him back to life. Here in Galatians chapter 1 and verse uh, 21, it says, Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith with once, which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. And all I'm going to do today is basically share the story of what happened to me. I want you through it, and as you hear the story, I want you to see the DNA of God's handprint all over it. And I want you to go away not thinking about Mr. Anger, but think about God and what he did. And what a miracle. I, I, th- I call it a miracle. I have a, a friend who's a pastor, and he tries to divide the line on what you call a miracle a little more differently. But I, you know, if God's involved in it, and God did it, and it just all points to God's you know, divine intervention to me, to me that's a miracle. But anyways, I want God to get the glory through what, uh, through what we share today. I'm going to share my story, then I want to share a little bit, if I have time, about some of the struggle that I went through because a lot of you guys are going into ministry, ladies as well. I want you to understand what it's like to lay there in a bed, not sure what the future holds. And think about how you can minister, because you will. You'll have people like that in your ministry. How can you minister? How can you pray for them and their families? And I'm sorry if I get a little choked up. I'll try not to. I brought two hankies with me, one for each hand, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Because uh, the story could have ended very differently, and it's very humbling to realize that God saved my life. And I'm very thankful, and I want you to see God in all of this. First off, I wanted to spell what a lot of you are thinking. No, I did not take the vaccine. (laughs) This has nothing to do with COVID vaccine. All right, just had to clear the air in case you're wondering. 
How many of you ever heard of an aortic dissection before? Have you ever heard of an aortic dissection? Aortic dissection. I had never heard of it. Okay. Um, January 17th, this past year, uh, I had recently joined the board at the Pennsylvania, it's called the Keystone Christian Education Association, and they were having a board meeting on Monday morning, the 17th. However, a big snowstorm, an ice storm moved in, and so they delayed the meeting. They said, we don't want people traveling in this weather. Let's do the meeting on Tuesday, the 18th, in Harrisburg. So... So, okay, that's fine. I'll change my schedule. I'll go Tuesday instead of Monday. Help shovel snow on Monday. Did some other projects on Monday. Tuesday, um, got up early, got my cup of coffee, drove an hour and a half to Harrisburg, got to the meeting, met the guys there, fellowship a little bit. We started the meeting and about 10 o'clock-ish. I don't remember, but I went unconscious and I fell off my chair. So here I am. You know, 10 guys in the room, I'm laying on the floor. And these guys are like, well, what in the world happened? Anybody knows you have any health issues? Nobody knew, I didn't know. Um, it's maybe you had a stroke, you know, someone called 911. So they got an ambulance to come in. And uh, I barely remember for a little bit coming to consciousness just to realize they were putting me in an ambulance and then I don't remember anything else. And uh, just so happens, Right, just so happens, that the closest hospital is Hershey Medical Center. Now that might not mean anything to you. You think of Hershey Candy, you think of Hershey Amusement Park, but actually Hershey Medical Center is the premier heart and vascular hospital on the East Coast. The best doctors, and it's a teaching hospital, so they have lots of nurses, lots of interns, a lot of people available at the hospital. And that just happened to be the closest, so they took me there. Radioing ahead, we have a patient who fell over, and they think he had a stroke. So when they brought me in, first thing they did is they cut all your clothes off of you with scissors and throw it in a bag. And the shirt was a brand new shirt I'd just gotten for Christmas, so my wife was not too happy about that. Um, and in my pocket I had, as I always have, a to-do list. And when she opened that note later and saw at the top of my list, it said, plan your funeral. Well, that was because we had, <laughs> we had a seminar coming up for our senior citizens and I was leading the seminar. I'd lined up a funeral director and a lawyer and I'm in charge of this seminar. And so I needed to finish planning this, but that didn't help my wife to see that in my to-do list. Um, but they wheeled me in and did a CT scan, we call it a CAT scan, and they were looking for any damage to the brain as a result of the stroke. Just so happens, okay, again, you see the DNA of God's fingerprint in this, the doctor who was on duty and happened to be called in to read the CAT scan for the brain damage, his expertise is dealing with aortic dissections. And as soon as he saw the CAT scan, he immediately recognized this is an aortic dissection in the process of taking place. And if we don't start surgery immediately, this man is gonna die within an hour. Now, I don't know if you know what the aorta is. I'll remind you of high school biology. Your heart has one big fat blood vessel that comes out. 
And then there are exits that go to the brain. And then as it travels up and around the loop, it heads down. And there's exits that go to all the organs, the arms. It goes down further all the way into the leg. There's three layers, an inner layer, a middle layer, and then an outer layer. What happens in an aortic dissection is that inner layer, for some reason, has weakened. It's usually due to smoking, drinking, high blood pressure, all of my issues. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> other than being a principal with a lot of junior high kids, that last one, I don't think I had high blood pressure. I certainly didn't have the other issues. They said it could be hereditary. We don't know of anybody in our family who had an aortic dissection. But anyways, that inner layer weakens just enough that that blood, when the blood comes out of the heart, it's pushed with such force that it could literally shoot six feet in the air. That's a lot of pressure. And it gets then into that little opening and then splits the inner layer away from the other two layers. And it creates a bubble, an aneurysm, I call it. And that aneurysm could actually rupture and explode. In my case, that hadn't exploded yet, but it was on the verge. I mean, it was like a really super thin, it was ready to explode. So that blood pressure is what had changed dramatically because that blood had gone in between those and gotten stopped up. As soon as the doctor said, we need to do surgery, they put me on a gurney to take me to the operating room and on the way, the heart said, I can't do this anymore and went into cardiac arrest. As you probably know, just a few minutes of cardiac arrest can mean not enough blood and oxygen to the brain and you're gone. They did CPR for eight minutes while they were going down the hallway to the operating room and then trying to start surgery. I was there, but I don't remember anything, thankfully. But they had to use a tool to cut right down the sternum, rip the chest open, put um, things on my chest and my legs and pipe icy cold water in there to cool the body down way below normal body temperature. And the reason for that is they want to stop all the organs. They want to stop the brain from operating. It stops blood flow to the extremities like the toes and fingers and um, it just stops, slows everything way down. They, uh, it was the part of the heart that, you know, part of the aorta that comes right out of the heart, it's called the ascending aorta, that was the closest to rupturing. And so the doctor thankfully had everything he needed. This is his job, this is what he does. And uh, seven hours of surgery, they're replacing that ascending aorta. Sewing it all back together, finally after seven hours, they still had work to do to get me, they didn't close me up, they actually left my chest open for several days to make sure that the things were draining properly and uh, had tubes hooked up to drain things. A lot, a lot of blood loss. I'm glad some of you donate blood and plasma that save, you know, that type of thing saved my life. Um, <clears throat> I used to donate blood a lot until I ended up on some medication that defers me, uh, but I'm thankful for people who donate blood and that that was available. But meanwhile, my family had been called and they heard, oh, dad fell off his chair. Maybe he was dizzy, you know, no big deal. Let's go to the hospital, when he comes, you know, when, he's, when they're done with him, we'll put him in the car and we'll drive him home so he doesn't have to drive. You know, it'll be nice. <laughs> Probably be back to work tomorrow, a good cup of coffee, we'll get him going again. And waiting and waiting and waiting. They had no ideas in surgery. Finally, the surgeon came out and explained that I'd had an aortic dissection. They didn't know what that was. So what would you do if you didn't know what something was? 
You Google it, right? <laughs> well, that's a bad thing to do when you're operating in a, in a waiting room. So they all, you know, my kids are all pulling their phones out, searching aortic dissection, 97% die. 3% survive only if they have immediate hospital care. If they're not near a hospital to get good care, they'll die. But then the doctor even said, we did everything we could. He's hooked up to life support for every single organ in his body. All we can do is wait, he's in ICU, we'll wait through the night. Um, there's a very good chance he will not make it. So, here's my family. First time they're here and how severe this is. Our pastor was with them. He heard the doctor explain it. My family's in shock. The pastor immediately sends a text message to our church family. It says, pray for Brother Anger. It's unlikely he's going to survive. If he does, it's a miracle. Let's pray for him. Then my daughter's doing some more research, and the doctor talking to them more explains, even if he survives this, there is a very high chance that he has had neurological damage and may never be himself again. He may never walk again. His brain may not function correctly. He may forget a lot. He may never be himself again. You just have to prepare yourself. This is, this is likely what's happened. And uh, so that was very difficult. My family had not come to Hershey thinking that they were going to stay overnight. Thankfully, a friend from church got a hotel for them and said, you just stay there. You need to be there. They tried to sleep that night. They had to go to Walmart to buy pajamas. Was, thankfully, that was nearby. Um, but it was sleepless days and nights and, and wondering. And I'm aware that today is the 25th. It's one week after the 18th. And it seems like a long time ago that it was the 18th, which was my one-year aortiversary. That's what we survivors call it. But for 10 days, I was on full life support, and the family had no idea whether I was going to, when they tried to take me off life support, whether I would actually survive, or as it happens in many cases, the body can't handle it and just dies. So they had uh, tubes going in to the heart. They're called left ventricle assist devices and a right ventricle assist device. Um, an ECMO machine, which takes the blood right from the heart and does what the lungs are supposed to do, putting oxygen in, taking carbon dioxide out, pumps it back in. Um, the kidneys were not functioning. The kidneys are the laziest organs in the body. So they shut down and they take the longest to come back. And so for quite a while, I was on dialysis. I mean, you pay everything. So I'm laying there, totally unconscious, having, now that I look back, having some really strange dreams. And I could hear every once in a while people talking. I could hear my son, who's a pastor, come in and talk and read scripture. They didn't know that I could hear. My son, Ben, very loudly said to me, Dad, the doctors have done everything they can to keep you alive. This is the first that I'm hearing that I should be dead. And it's up to you now, up to me. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? But the doctor had told him, your, your dad has to fight for life. He has to want to live or he's not going to live. And for some reason, I heard that. And then later, when they started taking me off the medication that was keeping me sedated, I could, my wife happened, happened to be in the room because I could only have a family member in the room for two hours a day. 
And, um, and of all things, when they took me in and tested, because they test everybody for COVID, right? I tested positive for COVID. What in the world? <laughs> and then I contracted pneumonia. Well, that's a killer too. So I've got COVID, I've got pneumonia, I'm on life support. Um, this is not a good situation, but my wife was in there praying, singing songs, reading scripture when I happened to come out and start being aware of my surroundings in responding. And that was the first time, 10 days after this whole thing had started, that I responded and there was some evidence. And the doctor came in and said, this is the best news we've heard in 10 days. But I'm telling you folks, it was a long process. I mean, looking back, it seems like two months is a short time and in some respects it is. But when you're laying there in ICU and you cannot move, I had the ventilator down my throat, I had a feeding tube down my throat, I can't talk, I can't communicate, I, I think I blinked my eyes some or could barely nod my head, but there really no communication. They, would ha they had a chart, but I couldn't even lift my arms. I've become so, after 10 days of not moving, I couldn't even lift my arm to point to things on this chart to indicate what I wanted. It's a very, very, very helpless and, and even hopeless feeling and wondering just what in the world does the future hold? I, have, I just have no idea. <clears throat> so I was four weeks in ICU. They gradually tried to remove the ventilator, seemed to do okay for a day, but then all of a sudden the lungs stopped working correctly. They were not taking in enough oxygen, were not getting rid of the carbon dioxide. So they had to put the ventilator back in. That was a setback. Still, you know, all, my, all my nutrition is coming through a tube. There's no eating, no talking. Um, <clears throat> the kidney dialysis machine constantly running 24-7 in the room to uh, care for the kidneys. I was unable, like I said, to talk. Thankfully, I, had, I, I began to remember as my mind's coming back to me, I remembered that I had learned sign language when I was a college student at a church, going to a church on extension. And um, my wife actually knows sign language pretty well. She remembered it. So I had her review the alphabet with me. And there were a few letters that I couldn't remember. So she refreshed my memory on those letters and I practiced going through all the letters. And some of them were kind of hard for her to read. But we got to a point where she could read my hands and follow along with what I was saying. And then I could finally communicate to her concerns that then she could communicate to the nurses and the doctors. Questions that I had, discomforts, things like that. In fact, I had some discomfort in my feet and I started spelling D-I-S-C-O. She says, disco? What in the world? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. So kept going, discomfort, and then explain it. So anyways, they brought a nurse in and were able to deal with whatever that problem. Uh, later, I had a lot of swelling in my arm. I had blood clots in my arm, and it was swollen three times its normal size. And they were trying to deal with getting the, the, the blood clots down. But they brought in um, oh, well, like ultrasound, like they do with you know with pregnant moms to see the baby. Well, they bring that in to re, and they're roving it all over to try to figure out where you know the clots are and how to deal with it. And my wife was there, so I'm texting to her. I-T-I-S-A-B-O-Y. 
So she says, okay, his humor's back. I think he's doing fine. <clears throat> I'm so thankful I could do some community. Sometimes I would, they could only be there two hours. So I would lay there the other 22 hours when I wasn't sleeping and I would be thinking, what did I want to communicate? And I would try to narrow it down to as few concise words as possible, memorize it, hold on to those few words. And when my wife would come in, try to communicate with her. Thankfully, I had one nurse who knew some sign language, another one who was willing to look at a chart that my wife brought in and actually try to figure out the signs and follow along. That was, that was actually a blessing and encouragement to me. I didn't realize how serious my situation was until several days after I'd come out of the induced coma, and my wife and son were sitting next to my bed, and they explained what had happened and then what the doctors were saying and how it truly was a miracle I was even alive. And how the doctors, even at that point, really did not know whether my body was gonna completely recover, whether I'd ever be able to walk again, whether I'd ever be able to uh, teach again. And then a couple days later, they had taken the ventilator out and they decided to help my breathing. They needed to drill a hole in my neck, do a tracheotomy and then put a tube over my neck so that I could breathe through my neck. They didn't tell me it was temporary. I thought, this is the rest of my life. I guess I'll have to you know, have a device on my neck, talk, I've seen people like that, they talk through a tube in their neck. We have a boy in our church who uh, actually has a tube like that and it's the only way he can talk. So that, well, I, I don't know what the future holds. Maybe I won't be able to teach again, or maybe I'll have to find a way to teach using this device. And uh, there's a lot of struggles you go through when you're laying there thinking about all of these what ifs. And uh, <clears throat> it was very comforting to know there are a lot of people praying. My, my wife and, and family started getting cards in the mail. We have a church family sending text messages to them all the time and they're sharing things with me. Um, I turned 60 while I was in the hospital. When I came out of the coma, it was January 28th. I remember seeing, I'm very time conscious, I remember seeing that on the wall and thinking, 28th? Last thing I remember was the 18th. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll be out of here by my birthday. Maybe I can be home. Well, there was no way I was going to be home by February 13th. But uh, people sent in cards and it was you know, trying to encourage me. My family especially needed encouragement during that very challenging time. The progress was slow, moved me to a progressive care unit. The nurses there were trying to get me out of bed. There's, I couldn't do anything. Could not feed myself, could not shower, could not even get out of bed to use the bathroom. It's, it's very difficult living in that kind of a situation and feeling absolutely helpless. But the nurses were encouraging to try to get you to just sit up move you into a chair that's right next to the bed for a couple of hours, you know, and then back to bed. And finally started taking a couple steps out the door, still hooked up to a bunch of tubes that are wheeling down the hallway behind me. And then finally I got to the point where they brought in pureed food. Oh my goodness, that was so good. Smell good, it tasted good. You think it's all like baby food. They actually try to form it so that it looks like the food, you know. Um, and I tried to eat it, enjoyed it, but then it was a gradual to chopped foods, and it was later, just as I was getting to finally the rehab, 
hospital where they did extensive rehab and a lot of walking and using a walker and uh, finally at the very end using just a cane. Two months to the day from the time I went to you know, the emergency room, two months to the day, March 18th, praise the Lord, my family took me home. And I was able to be back home in my own recliner, my own bed, and had to start doing a lot of practice and meeting with a physical therapist and going through. I wasn't obviously able to teach. Uh, at that point, thankfully, I was able to talk and communicate, although my voice did not sound normal yet. A lot of damage had been done to my vocal cords because the ventilators shoved down through the vocal cords. Um, <clears throat> I have to tell you one other uh, blessing. Are you, are you familiar with the uh, Samaritan Ministries? I don't know if that's what you guys have. Our church, um, instead of insurance, we have the Samaritan Ministries. So I've been with it for you know, 30 years. And when there's a need, that need gets published. And then certain members are told you need to send your share. Maybe it's you know, $700, $550, whatever their share is. You actually mail a check. We're now allowed them to do um, PayPal. Send it to this person. This is their need. Pray for them. Send them a card. Send them this money. So I was a part of that. And just a few years ago, just so happened, our pastor decided to join the optional share, uh, save to share, which means you put aside extra money every month. And then if there's a big need, then you send that extra money to these big needs. Because otherwise, you're capped out at 100000 per incident. So as I was getting ready to leave Hershey Medical Center, my son went down to get the bill. $2.2 million. Now they found out that we were self-pay, so they took off 67%. But 750,000 is still a lot of money in my book. And that was still a lot more than 100,000 cap would have covered. But you know, praise the Lord, it took a period of four months, but every single dollar of that bill was covered. And the hospital was paid off, the rehab hospital was paid off, the doctors, the follow-up visits and blood work and CAT scans after that were paid off. And for, for months I was, you know, people would ask, well, how are you feeling? I would say, well, I'm feeling about 80%. Getting back to normal, 80%, finally 90%, 95. And I was kind of hovering at 98, and that was because I had to take a nap every day. But hey, I turned 60. You know, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Maybe it's just age-related, as they call it. But um, <clears throat> once school started, I didn't have the luxury of being able to take a nap, and the Lord's given me the strength since September to be 100% and to be teaching full-time and the principal full-time. And uh, back to full, everything I was doing before, I lost 50 pounds while I was in the hospital. And since I've been home, I've gained back 60 of those pounds. <laughs> <clears throat> so actually probably my suits are not fitting as well. I probably need to uh, go back home and be a little more careful. Christmas is hard. My wife is a tremendous baker. Um, <clears throat> let me share with you quickly here some of the struggles. A big one when a person's in a situation like that is fear. I wish I could say that I was super spiritual and fear never crossed my mind. 
But even when you don't want it to, it's like it just creeps in. And all these fearful thoughts about what will the future hold? What if I can't, we had just recently bought a house and I'm only halfway through paying for it. What if I can't work? How, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I gonna pay for this house? How am I gonna pay for my medical needs? All these doubts and questions, um, even if you don't want them to, you come rushing to your mind. Discouragement. Looking back, I realize I was making great progress. The doctors were, were thrilled. The rehab doctors and nurses were thrilled. But when you're living through it, it seems slow. And you just wish it was moving faster. And you still have some aches and pains and some little things that you don't want to focus on those things, but they tend to take over your mind. And I just had to keep trying to refocus my thoughts on the Lord and get off the thoughts of discouragement that just kept wanting to creep in. During the uh, time I was in the, in the ICU, actually, one of my very best friends at church, just a couple years older than me, had just retired. He had been an administrator at a hospital in the payroll department. And um, he knew he had a heart condition. He'd been treated for it. He was under doctor's care. He was, he was working out. He, was all, he, had a, he had a gym in his basement, and he was constantly working out. And uh, found out that one day while he was on the treadmill, he had a massive heart attack, slid off the end of there, and died. And instantaneous. And I didn't find out till about a week and a half later, my family finally told me. And that was devastating for our church. He was one of our head deacons. He was a very faithful man, godly man. His children loved the Lord, all part of our church. Good friend of mine. And it's almost like PTSD when you're laying there in bed thinking, why did he die and why didn't I? And this isn't fair. And there's just a lot of questions that go through your mind. And you want to trust God. And in your, in your mind, you know God's in control. But I used to, there were times when I'd just lay there in bed and I couldn't move and the tears would just roll down the back and into my ears. I could feel, feel the hot tears in my ears and the nurses weren't there and nobody could wipe my eyes. I couldn't reach up to wipe my eyes. Just crying. And not knowing what. Will I be handicapped the rest of my life? Can I trust God through that? I need to trust God through that. God's in control. I tried to focus on all those things God had done to bring me to that point. He allowed me to be near Hershey when this happened. He, he didn't, I didn't have the aortic dissection while I was driving to the meeting. You know, they, the men there immediately got me to the hospital. I mean, so many blessings. The... <laughs> The doctor who is on call, you know, I mean, all those, all those things I mentioned kept reminding me, God's in control, God's in control, God did this. Trust the Lord. So one day when my son, Tommy, who's a pastor, came in and he was reading from Psalms, and he read a verse that said, um, trust, rest, you know, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That was just part of the verse. But I said to him, Tommy, stop. Write that on the whiteboard that's right across me. That's where the nurses all write their name, and they write the date, and they write what your care is. 
I said, I want that verse right in front of my bed so I can see that verse. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. And that verse just pulled me through those weeks. I just remembered, you know, thinking I'm at home, I'm just falling into my recliner. The recliner is resting in the Lord. I just have to sit here. I can't do anything. I just need to rest. I need to heal. I need to be resting, though, in the Lord. He's in control. He is sovereign. I don't understand this. I don't know why, but I have to trust him and rest in him. And then... All of a sudden, a week, a couple days before I'm supposed to go to the rehab hospital, they came in and said, okay, we're taking you off the feeding tube, and they ripped it out, and we're taking you off um, the backup oxygen, and uh, we're taking you off of um, all these other things. You know? And I'm like, this is too fast. I'm not ready for this. I need that. I need that to live. This is part of my life support, and you're taking me off. What's going to happen? And then the second phrase, wait patiently for the Lord. And I thought, okay, I've been waiting and now he's ready. He's saying, Tim, it's time. You need to go to rehab. Now it's time to move forward. I'll be there with you through the rehab. And then even in rehab, I thought of the verse in Isaiah about the uh, wings as eagles and the Lord giving the strength you need. And I would quote that verse while I'm walking around with my walker. (laughs) And the therapist is counting my steps and measuring and encouraging me. Oh, you did a few more steps this time. This is good. This afternoon, we're going to do more. You know, so take a nap, come back, do more in the afternoon. So I had to cling to those truths through that time. I just recently saw a video news clip about the flooding. I think it was in California. And there was a lady who had crawled out the window of her house that was flooding and she had got up on the roof and then crawled into a nearby tree. And she's clinging for dear life to this tree until a helicopter came and sent someone down to grab onto her and rescue her. And sometimes I kind of felt like I was that person hanging onto a tree. Here's this raging storm flying past me, all these questions, all these doubts, all these fears, all these unknowns, and I'm clinging to something. I'm clinging to the truth. God is real. I knew that. God allowed this to happen. God orchestrated the details. And God's going to work it out. I don't know how the story's going to end, but I just have to cling to this truth. God is in control. Another truth I clung to is God answers prayer. I found out that there were literally thousands of people, people I don't even know, who somehow heard about you know, there were people here praying for them, people at Maquanago, people I grew up in on the mission field. How many of you grew up on the mission field? Wow, look at that. I grew up on the mission field of Hawaii. Talk to me later about how you get a call to Hawaii. <clears throat> um, but I grew up on the mission field. There were people that I had met there, people in churches there that knew my dad that were praying. There was a Facebook group set up, Prayers for Tim Anger, and there were former students and all kinds of... I went back uh, just a couple weeks ago and tried to read some of those posts. And those early posts, they thought that for sure I was a goner. And so I was reading what, it felt like I was reading speeches from my funeral. People talking about memories of Tim Anger as if he was already gone, you know? (laughs) Um, in in 
In a way, it was encouraging to read that I'd had some impact on some lives, people I forgot about, people who I had no idea had impacted them, and it was a blessing to read. But again, I wanted all of the, the healing that's taken place to point to God answers prayer. There were a lot of people praying. I just read in my devotions the other day about that man who was lame and his four friends brought him to Jesus, lowered him in front of Jesus. And you know what that next verse says? Jesus saw their faith and healed that man. And I don't, I don't, say, I don't believe God healed me because of my faith. I'm a, I'm a man of little faith. But God saw the faith of so many people who were praying for me, and I think God heard, and God answers prayer. I had an unsaved person I'm working with <clears throat> recently asked me, do you really believe in answered prayer? And I said, yes. He said, I don't. <laughs> we had an interesting discussion. But um, yeah, I do. I do believe that God hears and answers prayer. And lastly, I believe God gives daily grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my grace, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And God took me through a time of serious weakness and showed me in a very real way that his grace is sufficient. Sometimes we have to, we hear it, we know it, you know, it's a truth from the Bible, but when you live it and you have to go through those deep waters, you cling to that truth even stronger. It means so much more to you. <clears throat> During that time when I could not even pick up a Bible to read, my, my arms were too weak, and the Bible was like super heavy. It's hard to believe that that was just months ago. I had to rely on verses I had in memory and songs that I had in my in my memory. And I could sing those in the middle of the night. I had rough nights sometimes where I'd just have panic attacks. And I would force myself to meditate on scripture and to sing songs. I'm thinking of the song, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. I sung that one a lot. The last verse says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. And God certainly has been faithful through all of this to me and to my family. I have no complaints. <clears throat> I think I'm back to 100%. Um, I have just some lingering issues with my toes. It's also almost like my toes went through... Uh, um, frostbite, <laughs> and so there's some weird things going on with them, but you know, that's minor. Um, it's just a reminder, a big scar on my neck. I still have the hole where the trachea healed up. My granddaughter likes to point out the scar behind my ear. She says, Papa, is that where they put the tube down into your heart? And I said, yep. You know, but those are just reminders to me that of what I went through and that it was real, I didn't dream it, and that God, um, God worked. I want the takeaway for you to be two things. One is God is real. God answers prayer in your own life. Secondly, you are going to have to deal with people in ministry who are going through trauma. And uh, I know my son Tommy said it's one thing to be a pastor and hear people say pray for so-and-so as they go through surgery. He said it changed his whole perspective when his own dad was laying there. 
And I think God uses trauma in our lives sometimes in ministry to open our hearts to other people who are going through things and to be able to truly care for them and minister to them in ways that otherwise we would be unable to.